Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 21st of September 2020. I shall start this week's report with a big thank you to Tim Porter from Sofitra in Kent. He has kindly sent what he describes as some decent Kent ale for our analysis. Unfortunately, we've got two or three weeks before we're going to get to it, Tim, so I've got to sit and look at those lovely eight bottles of Bishop's Finger. But I really appreciate the very kind gift. So there's something for all of you to learn. Send me free beer and you get a lovely mention and all your colleagues in the grain trade will know that you listen. So... Let's move on to a what can only be described as a, a fascinating market. I think doing grain were quite useful last week. Our information about not tendering in November created conversation amongst those who understand it. There's plenty who don't, but the, the reality of not having East Anglian tenders coming onto the pitch, there not being anyone else particularly in our area that does that function, made everyone look very closely at where the tenders will be coming from. And there's also been some hefty analysis of who actually is the person who's short in this marketplace. Uh, You know, I'm not going to get too technical, but those who understand it can see probably there is going to be a bit of a difficulty for someone if they're short of futures and they cannot tender. So technically there could be an issue on the market getting squeezed. But for those last week who'd already worked that out, great for those who are learning about the trade. This is actually, for an anorak, studying this particular subject, quite interesting. Moving on to the actual prices or the actual market, the dynamic of the market is this. The farmer hasn't really got any pressure to sell. He's got plenty of things to do to preoccupy himself. He's now out there, you know, planting next year's crop or lifting potatoes or, you know, and, and numerous jobs. They really are genuinely busy. Consumers do still need to buy, although they have been reasonably active in the last couple of weeks and had to pay more money than they wanted to. They have got September, October, largely November, probably covered albeit I think if you offered some there's still some tonnage to be done but they're not in a desperate rush for it and they've got enough to breathe so a consumer still has a lump to buy throughout the year but in the immediate short term he's getting a little bit more relaxed albeit not covered the farmers not selling the consumers needing to buy ish is fueling a market that continues to have you know wild dreams of high prices so once you get the trade not quite as short, you then lose some of the crazy paying up that's been going on. I mentioned being blown out of the water last week by one or two prices. You have to concede sometimes. But if you've got a book that isn't short and someone is panicking, yeah, it can make you look foolish. And I've had one or two young bucks sort of going around saying, oh, he's lost his touch, that boy. Doing grain aren't paying the price. You can make more money to X, Y, or Z. Yeah, okay, you know, one day, one week's worth of craziness. I would reflect on that and say some people either A, predicted a dramatic market rally, or B, were in the shit and had to pay up. So as a measured piece of trading, the conversation needs to be had about grain trading when the market's at the right time to sell it. And I think in the next few weeks, we're getting to that place. I don't know the future. I don't know what the weather's going to do. And I don't know the various political dynamics either. But we're talking about prices going up into the 180s what are we waiting for, is an important point. And the premiums that people are hanging on for, I've said this on several occasions, 
are big and they won't be bigger. They won't be a sudden shortage in April, May, June. Everyone knows they've got a quality spec, but everybody who is a buyer of a quality spec is trying to solve his problem. And if you're not going to solve it for him, he will find another way of solving it. And that means he will buy imported higher spec product and mix some lesser spec with it to make the grist that he needs to make. So if you if you think you can screw the feed wheat price up to a max and you can screw the premium up to a max and sell it with a carry to next May, dream on. Anyway, values. This morning the futures is about £2 up as I speak. So value X farm for feed wheat at this moment is 175 X farm for November. There are people trying to achieve a £5 premium to the futures and they are trading at £179 a tonne. So in theory, the consumers should be paying 184 Well, there's no physical bids whatsoever in the marketplace. So those premiums over the futures are disappearing as the futures getting this technical squeeze is going to come closer to the delivered market again. However, if the consumer thinks, yeah, right, I'll just pay futures price, well, again, on this occasion, dream on. That isn't going to happen either. Probably the premium will come into three or four quid and they will be paying 180-something delivered for it. But it is a game and it's a good luck in the timing of what you do. Let's move on to the milling wheat premium side of things. I've touched on them dropping because the, the miller will solve the problem. Class 1 milling wheat is in excess of £200 a tonne delivered to mill. Now, from East Anglia, that takes you down to 180-something ex-farm depending on how far the haulage is. Again, how much over £200 a tonne do you think the miller is going to be prepared to pay? Do you genuinely think the market's going to keep going up? I appreciate it's about international prices and replacement. There's a very, very large amount of milling wheat ordered on boats on its way here or due to be coming here in the next couple of months. And I think you just need to look carefully at your milling wheat be overjoyed it's 100 and perhaps 90 pounds a ton and then again i think we need to think about selling it beware imports moving on to barley talk feed barley first firm market you will make probably 32 for october something like that plenty of people trying to buy for boats it is still a 43 pound discount to wheat that's enormous absolutely enormous so i don't see a downside to it albeit we, we don't seem to be able to use much more in the grist in the uk because they'd be buying it anyway the other thing to consider is there isn't a carry in this market particularly as far as farmers assuming that they're going to get a £1 a month carry for everything. The dynamic of the squeezed futures market has meant that there is barely £1.50 between Nov and May on the futures. So there is no carry and that's important. So spot prices are best by a mile, especially if you have an overdraft. If you haven't got an overdraft, then it doesn't really make a lot of difference but you do spend money keeping it every single month. So if it's all about timing and you don't want to keep opening the shed and looking to see if it smells bad or whatever you do in the winter to look after it, you know, it may be the right decision to sell and get rid of it. I maintain that it's going to take a lot of beating as the futures price heads towards 180 spot and the ex-farm price very close to it for that to be bettered as the season progresses. On to malting. I think that winter barley, there isn't really any left that we know of. There's the odd pocket of it. There will be a market for it. There's plenty of people who've got some good sales in place. And no doubt there'll be the odd rejection. We've had the pleasure of some a couple of high nitrogen rejections this morning on some spring barley. And the misery of going to Molster from direct from farm is, you know, just irritating and, and annoying. But an 800 tonne bulk, you're bound to get the odd bit that just goes over the line. So... Yeah, I think winter barley, nothing left. If you have got some, yep, we can either blend it or we can either trade it. If you've got a sample, let us know. There's no rush on that. I don't see any pressure on you.
So take your time about it. As far as the springs are concerned, there is shorts in the market. You know, a number of people who perhaps rejected some high-priced purchases and are able now to buy some barley in at what will be giving them a phenomenally good margin. So there are some good prices going to be paid if you've got high-spec spring malting barley. So have a look around. Yes, it's a firmish market. So your prices are now into the 150s, 160s for the autumn, depending on what you've got exactly. The nitrogen levels have been raised a bit into maltings, which is irritating because at the start of harvest, you remember we had an enormous crop coming and a great big area of spring barley, a big carryover, and the world was going to end. And I think I said on one of my podcasts, whenever it's utterly certain something's going to happen, the opposite occurs. Well, you know, a lot of the barley did fail in the end and the yield wasn't there, so they created a bit more demand for it. At the moment, we made the decision at harvest to say 185 was the max, and I think one or two molsters will take spring barley up to 1.9 now. So there is an opportunity perhaps for people who've kept it in their barns or have been able to put it to one side. I think there is Scottish barley coming down. It's cheaper in Scotland at the moment, so the the irony of Scottish barley coming this way is not missed. I think allegedly it's about 130x up there and enormous haulage on it. It's going to be at mid-150s as it gets here, but if it's very low nitrogen, that could be of use. And I know some people who are doing exactly that. Moving on to oilseed rape, 350 is achievable dynamic of the pound, the dynamic of the soya market, the Chinese buying on soya. The target price we set was 350. It's 350 for November. It's there. So we are pushing a number of our guys to certainly do a volume of their tonnage at this price. That's the whole point of setting a target. It's 20 quid up from where it was a while ago, so it is at the price we want it to be. And as a grown-up, we're saying, yes, it could go further, but you know, 350 plus bonus is an unusually high price. There is a big Canadian crop and there is a big Aussie crop that will come later in the season onto the market. So it isn't all a one-way street because China is buying soya. So just bear that in the back of your mind. I've got to mention the pound. It has had a very volatile week as our incredibly stable government have made some great decisions. I think that the pound euro, as at time of recording, is 1095. It's been down at 108. Our view as traders, we have to have a view, is that the pound will have some further difficult moments as one or two of the negotiations and some of the bits and pieces internally in the Conservative Party come to the top. You know, there's a lot of brinksmanship, but there is a moment when we're going to have to to back down or we're going to have to make a decision. So I think we will have weak periods in the pound, which could give us price opportunity. Also, when we get to a point of perhaps doing a deal, have a very firm pound. And that is something that also will affect your prices and is a risk to you. And you have to assess opportunity and you have to assess risk. Beans, we haven't talked about them. £200 a tonne, easily, depending on where you are and how close to the market you are and how desperate someone is to fill a boat. But in round figures, 200 If you've got samples, send them in. There isn't that much of a premium for human consumption, albeit sometimes there is a premium. So samples are required. Please send them along. We'll have a look and do our best to pay the earth for them, which £200 a tonne is, by the way. So finally, I want to just touch on 2021 harvest. You know, we've got the world meteorological people are saying that La Nina is looking 70% likely. Now, as you know, La Nina, El Nino is a Pacific Ocean phenomena which creates weather patterns in key growing areas. La Nina, or the girl child, is the one that makes South America and Australia wet and in the spring it makes the US dry so in historical terms they have been quite a high impact price year 
but only from about April onwards, March, April. If it starts being really dry in the States with their corn planting and the weather pattern sets in and is a strong La Nina, there is a high chance that we will see bullish US market, which always leads the rest of the world up. So that's that's a long way off, but it is something to cling to if you're an eternal bull. The other thing to consider specifically to the UK is we've got a set of scale on new crop. New crop is being dragged up on old crops bullishness and the sentiment of it and the lack of farmer selling. The Black Sea area is very dry. That, I think I mentioned last week, that was dry last year and they planted it and then it eventually rained and, and, and there was a good crop. But it is exceptionally dry and exceptionally warm at the moment and that is becoming an issue that's being talked about. So that's kind of underlyingly bullish. The downside for the UK is the fact that lots of you are out there not selling your grain. You are busy planting next year's crop. And as you all know, all of you have increased your wheat acreage. I'm sure someone will phone up and say... You know, I'm saying you're all different, and one comes back and says, I'm not. So everybody is planting more wheat. Great, that creates a more tonnage for good old doing grain to live off, but it also has Brexit hanging over it. We don't know the detail of how or where we're going to be able to trade our grain to, whether it's tariff-free or whether it isn't. I personally am a sceptic of, I don't believe Europe will allow us to sell feed wheat into Europe tariff-free. I think we'll be buying grain tariff-free, but we won't be selling it tariff-free. I think it'll be one of the things we give ground on in order to gain something else in the in the negotiations, because I don't see the it being of that much importance to the government. So your set of scales is underlying bullish weather issues that could evolve in the world versus a very big area, a surplus in the UK, and potentially a difficult selling scenario so with that it's a lovely warm dry week ahead and the week beyond that apparently so maybe we have a drought here anyway with that have a great week's trading and if it's as hairy as this week's keep taking the tablets thank you for listening please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours and now it's time for farm chat This week, I've got someone on the podcast who I've been wanting to get on here from day one. Today, I have with me the infamous, no, the fabulously famous Teddy Morph. Well, thank you very much. Probably infamous (laughs) is the correct word. Okay, so what is it that shot you to your fame or lack of it? I think what definitely happened with me is that we've been growers of malting barley here for years and years. My father before me and tenants at Holcombe way years before that. And we got to a situation, as you know, Andrew, where we were growing malting barley very well and making a nice loss on it every year as well. So the year we first met was about 1997, 8, somewhere around there. I can't remember when you stood up and went, right, enough. And as horribleist, yes, about 97. And we knew that we just couldn't go on like this. To start with, I thought it was a temporary blip. And then I realised that the malting barley price wasn't coming back anytime soon. Mm. We were overproducing. And unfortunately, the laws of supply and demand were cutting in. And we were losing out because of that. You certainly weren't making any money, were you? not making any money. And so James Keith and I and Paul Hoverson mm-hmm. formed an organization called the Malting Barley Growers Confederation. Bit of a mouthful, but it was there to try and get farmers en masse to actually grow less malting barley. And that was our intention. And we had a big meeting at Eastern Agricultural mm-hmm. College. 
that you were probably present at. No, I didn't go to that. I'd met you before then at this kind of planning stage. I'd only just gone to Aylesham and didn't probably trade at about 3,000 tonnes of malting barley that year. And I can remember the meeting. and I remember you building up to your... We got over 90 farmers, which on an August morning is pretty darn good. And I gave it my Henry V Part 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up you know, sweating and having to sit down, giving absolutely a spent force. And felt, well, you know, I, I can't do better than that. However, one of my friends had arrived late at this meeting. And he said that when I finished talking about how we were all going to have to grow less and supply and demand, this old Norfolk boy elbowed him in the ribs and said, I tell you what, if Teddy Morph and his cronies are all going to grow less, now's the time to double up. <laughs> So uh, it didn't go necessarily exactly to plan. On that basis, you know, Norfolk farmers and farmers countrywide who listen to this, you know, there lieth your problem. You don't, when the chips are down, work as a unit, you think self first, co-op second, and that in the end is the downfall. Farmers tend to always run back to their little moated house and pull up the drawbridge and do their own thing. And that is, you know, that's the basis which you've got to try, like herding cats, as they say. A natural reaction, and there's been a long period of time where farmers have had enough money in this since the 70s through to now to be independent, allowing some that haven't had quite good land or whatever to survive on. But largely there's been enough money in the industry to keep people independent. They've enabled them to, to maintain that because the income has been big enough despite them moaning. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you get to a point where a product that's been a benchmark or a cornerstone is not performing. Malting barley and... Someone stands up, sticks their neck out, and the reaction wasn't just that one farmer. Lots of farmers just didn't listen or didn't give a damn, did they? Lots of farmers uh, cried into their beer down the pub and said, you know, Teddy's on a hiding to nothing. It's hopeless. I feel it was like trying to turn a super tanker around. (laughs) And so it takes time. Lots of emergency bells ringing and orders. and (laughs) And then you see the compass move two degrees and then the next year another three. But we did actually get somewhere and we did impress upon the merchants, I think, that eventually they wouldn't have any farmers to deal with. Because if we all went bust, there wasn't actually going to be... You're right, you did. It wasn't going bust. That's always the phrase, oh, we go bust. It wasn't. You'd just grow wheat or you'd just grow something else. You wouldn't grow malting barley. So you definitely got a reaction because there is a point at which if, if malting barley does not stack up, then you've got alternatives. So why go through that misery? Exactly that. And that was my mantra on and on and on. And eventually we did get somewhere. And I think I'm really pleased that the younger generation of guys are, and women, farmers, are much more turned on to the real economics of farming. Obviously, as a tenant, it's always been a bit more poignant for me to, to make sure that we don't lose money every year. Mm. But I think people of your sort of vintage are much more enabled in to look at the proper figures. A lot of farmers of my vintage, th- that classic, we've always done it this way, we've always grown malting barley, all those things which immediately bring a headache to me. But, you know, we've got to move on and we've got lots of exciting, challenging times ahead. Yeah, so Josh, your generation are looking at figures? Yeah, I mean, probably in my generation's to their benefit there's a lot of computer programs that help it's a lot easier to be able to smack a few things in excel and it works out a lot quicker for you but yeah i think a lot of people are really looking at it 
in, in serious depth, actually, to be fair to them. Yeah, but in our case, malting barley coming back wasn't coming back quick enough. We really fought and did make a chain reaction slowly happen. And so the real ale shop came into being. Before the real ale shop, Marisotta, tell me that there was an evolution within that, wasn't there? Definitely an evolution in that Marisotta, as we know, nearly died out altogether. If it wasn't for Bannums and Robin Appels, you know, it would have done. And they resuscitated it and realised that it really was wanted as a genuine cult product for high-class beers. So thank goodness that, you know, they did that and to take my hat off to them for doing it. Mm. But we still, the part two of that was Otter, as you know, yields less. We had to have a price that could still stack up even Absolutely. though we were, were getting the lower yield. There was some bumps on the road there and there is, you know, been a bump on the road for me this year because of the weather of the monsoon winter followed by the Southern California spring. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I hope that the pigs don't get indigestion eating some of my marisotta. Yes, uh, the dynamic of this particular year is that all barley, not just marisotta, in this corner of the county had obviously the drought from hell from March all the way through and, and the terrible wet winter, but the nitrogen levels were pushed through the roof above the usable value. So the risk of growing any malting barley is it doesn't make the grade. The risk with marisotta is greater because the yield isn't there which is why they have to pay a higher price for the farmer to take that risk. Exactly. And what I've always argued, especially now that I'm sort of allied to the brewing industry as well, is that it doesn't cost a lot more actually brewing the beer, paying another 30 quid a tonne on the actual malt. It isn't a huge, you know, water is the main ingredient of beer. So so at £200 a pint, how much per pint is the barley well, the, the barley is around a penny and a half, isn't it? I mean, it is ridiculously small, but there will be a bean counter somewhere from a big brewery saying, which I understand, but, you know, if we multiplied that up overall. But when you're actually a craft brewer or a little real ale guy, you can put another five pence on your bottle and the customer isn't really going to run for the hills. So that's been my thing. If you're growing a quality product and it's going into the end of a lovely high-quality beer or ale at the end, come on, let's pay everybody up the chain a sensible amount so that we can keep doing it each year and keep the thing going. Yeah, well, I mean, you'll see, and we're going to be talking on next week's podcast to your son, Bruin, the subject matter of the amount of investment to get a product and the amount of work that goes into getting that product to the end market is immense and exceptionally risky and costly. So there is a need for there to be a reward for all that effort separately to the base cost of the product. But certainly when people push the price of beer up on the basis of there was a problem with the barley harvest, that does really irritate me. <laughs> yes, no, I can, I can understand that. And that, that uh, question you'd have to ask Bruin or Max, my sons, not me. Yeah. I'm not responsible. The, 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 <laughs> he the, says passing the buck quickly. The £100, the hundred pounds a tonne is about a penny a pint, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so so yeah. £100 pounds per tonne increase in price for a farmer would be that. But the strength of purchasing the product is in the hands of very few people nowadays. The only strength the farmer has, the meeting you held, is to not grow it. Exactly that. And we did finally, as you know, Andrew, we got there with Marisotta, with other barleys, we finally got it there that enough farmers 
realised that it was a supply and demand situation. Sterling was flying really high. Exports were stifled. The barley was all swilling around the UK with no home to go to. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that, you know, no wonder people were buying it for nothing. Mm. So I'm pleased that we did achieve something there. Oh, you and definitely did. Yeah. So it's always good to have achieved something in your life. <laughs> well, as, 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 as I think, you know, if you had a, if you'd have said in 1997, look, you know, one day you will be um, one remembered for being someone that stood up when everyone else wasn't. That's enough of an accolade. But for your own sons to be brewing your barley on your farm on your premises, and having a product that's so accepted and such good spec. In London, in Norfolk, you know, all of the trendy places in the world, that in itself must be, you must be so proud. Well, I, I am proud, and I, I, th- I think the thing that I'm, I'm most pleased with is that I've managed to... Leopard never changes its spots, but I was once upon a time just an arable farmer, and that's all I knew. As you know, we, we rent on the Holcomb Estate. My father was wanted early retirement, rushed me through into farming, and that's what I did. And I knew nothing other than than farming. And it wasn't until we got to those late 90s and everything was starting to fall apart that I had to reinvent myself. Mm. And the farming still very much goes on at Brand Hill, and I'm very pleased that it has, but in a slightly altered form with environmental bits as well added to the party. But it was actually eldest son, Zach, who got us going on the next part, which was the real ale shop. Mm-hmm. And where's Zach? Zach is in San Francisco, and he is called Golden Boy by his brothers and his father. <laughs> Did he vote for Donald Trump? We, we sort of follow along in his wake, really. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, when things were really bad here, he said, come and have a holiday here. I'll pay for you. And he took us out. I think, Andrew, you've heard this story. We went out to the Sonoma Valley and Napa Valley, went round the wine areas and the vineyards, therefore. And at the end of the tour, he sat Sally and me down under a sun umbrella in a nice blue sky California afternoon. And he said, right, this, you've heard all the bullshit from these guys of the history and the territoire. This was gold rush country 150 years ago. There wasn't a grape in sight. (laughs) They've been growing barley in North Norfolk since I'd seen times Mm. romans were having beer here and since shakespeare's time barley has been grown commercially in norfolk Mm. can't you do something so we felt a bit like children in the lower fourth who'd failed on most (laughs) initiatives (laughs) so we came back on the flight across the atlantic muttering to ourselves could do better was obviously written on the bottom (laughs) he he takes after you dear (laughs) And we thought maybe a real ale shop. And that was part two of the diversification. And as well as trying to get the malting barley price better and actually at the coalface, but also to do something which could perhaps sooner help prop up Brand Hill's business. Mm. And that was very scary, actually. Mm. When we were doing it, we had no retail experience. We went on quite a lot of courses, which mainly involved farm shops. And always when they went round, what do you sell? Do you sell lamb? Do you sell apples? Do you sell... You're going to sell beer? Well, what's that got to do with farming? That was the (laughs) classic, which, you know, obviously made us feel even more insecure over the whole thing. But luckily... 
just before we opened, when we were very sort of nervous at the, of the whole thing, a positive happened in that we found a young guy who was great friends with Zach, our eldest son, who'd been working in Canada. And we asked him to help us on the retail side of things. So it brought some North American experience to it. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, he said to us one day, what are you going to do about the card machine, the credit card machine? And I said, well, I tell you what, we'll open without a credit card machine softly, softly, and then we'll work up to a card machine. And Nick, he's a big guy, American footballer. He stood up and said, Teddy, no card machine, no Nick. (laughs) And he said, you will do without 50% of your business. And I've teased him since he couldn't get that right it was 80 percent really and obviously now it's a hundred during the covid thing and you can so get it, you can get a signal for it in this it, remote we, area. we yeah get the get the signal for it and it, you know and the card is where it's where it's at so it just shows how i was being in my probably my 50s then being pulled screaming into the 21st century mm. well being brave enough to take advice is a big thing when you're in your 50s, isn't it? I'm, I'm in my 50s, and obviously no one can tell me anything, Teddy. <laughs> well, you've got to be open, I know. To I, When I took over the farm, we had a really good foreman. My father, although well, he wanted early retirement, was really early retired already and was sailing in the West Indies half the year. I've never been able to farm Brandhill so that that can happen, but who knows? <laughs> uh, maybe Bruin and Max will make it happen. But you've got to... Be ready for change, open for change. And actually, when my father took over this farm in 1938, the tenancy with Bill Newcomb Baker from Sedgeford, who was a real trailblazer, second combine in Norfolk, been to the States, seen the, one of the reasons they chose Brandhill because there were several farms at Holcomb going begging in the late 30s because right. of the agricultural depression, mm. was the fields were a bigger size and he was ahead of the game. And my father did teach me. He said, you know, there's no doubt that you've got to be open to change in whatever business. And he said farmers seem to be the most stuck in a furrow of anyone. Yeah, I I still think that largely, I mean, on our podcast, we've tried to open people's eyes to what some other people have done, how they've diversified and just just through the story of their what they're doing and how they've done it. Just to appeal to one or two people, say, well, maybe you could do that. And I don't just mean turn a shed into Aldi, I mean, you know, really genuinely utilise the skills of the things that really interest you. Some people have gone into building, some people have, you know, set up farm shop, whatever. But hopefully are going to be a motivator for someone to start brewing or someone to start retailing or... All of that. I mean, when we opened the real ale shop, we were very, very worried. Lord Lester of the time, he told me afterwards that he thought it was the most mad hatter idea he'd ever heard. (laughs) But he said, Teddy, you were brimming over with enthusiasm in the estate office. And I felt I couldn't put a pin in your bubble. And he said, you had to say you weren't going to spend a lot of capital money on it. So I didn't think you were going to sink the ship on it. But he said, when you left the office, I thought, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Sometimes you need that kind of story to make you say, yeah, great, I did it, didn't you? I I had a load of people tell me not to set up as a grain merchant on my own. That was a a nutty idea. Everyone else had gone broke, basically, or, or just hadn't succeeded in at least 15 years. More established ones are still there, but largely it was it was dumb. Or buying Cantley, we bought a grain store at Cantley and then turned it into a not a co-op, but a, a collective of people who owned it. So many people said, "Don't do that." Yeah. That 
now, you know, they've not sunk, they've yeah. happily sailed along, and you do feel kind of secretly... Basically, you have to come out of your comfort zone sometimes oh, to, to do that. And obviously, the cap payments, the BPS and stuff fading away for tenants, that's going to obviously hit us immediately. But... There's no doubt people with broad acres owning their farms have not been in the true economic world for a while. And that's going to happen, whether we like it or or not. And it's going to be interesting times. But no, the, the real ale shop has been a lot of work. What I should say is when we were opening the day before, I've told you a positive, but the day before we opened, John Temple, who was a great farmer at the top of his game, whose obviously daughter-in-law, Catherine Temple, makes certain cheese you may have heard of. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And he came into the shop and we shared a beet harvester and he was, you know, one of my gurus really on how to farm. And he came in and he said, Teddy, it's lager now. You're 20 years too late. So that put me a, a spring in my step. And then the second thing he said is your ale shop is too far from the road. Mm. The Wells Faintnam Road is a quarter of a mile up a drive and no one will turn down here. It's not on the road. So he left and all that night I tossed and turned <laughs> thinking, we can't ship. How do we, how do we get out of this one? You know, put the shop in a lay-by. Anyway, I was not a happy bunny with either of those remarks. And I decided that what I should do is start asking the customers whether they'd found the drive up the drive had been a put-off. And uh, there was a, about three days after we'd opened, there was a rather opulent couple getting back into their silver Mercedes. And I approached them with caution and said, did you find that the drive put you off? And they looked at me and they said, no, we've only come from Norwich. (laughs) (laughs) So I started to realise that, you know, perhaps the drive drive wasn't the final straw. But they then said, we came out of curiosity. And when we've done actual surveys, we find that as much as a third of our customers turn up that drive just to have a look and be nosy. And then they buy a few beers. Brilliant. Yeah, well, don't take advice from a local farmer about retail. It is a piece of advice. Yes. But the, I mean, the irony is the road that you live on, you know, or, or live off, is called the dry road. Why is it called the dry road? The dry road because this is a new road by English standards. It was built in 1790, so it's a pretty new... And this uh, is between Fakenham and Wells, isn't it? As the port of Wells became bigger and before the railway, they wanted to get the, the grains and everything else, coal that was coming in at Wells, inland to Fakenham. And the old road wound through Walsingham uphill and down Dale. And they looked at the map and said, why don't we just make a road straight through? And it was called Dry Road because there were no pubs on it. Exactly. So you thought, I know. Yeah. So (laughs) there we go. But that's, yeah, that's the history of the Dry Road. Right. We're going to take a break there because there's still many stories to drag out of you. And I want to say thanks very much for that, Teddy. My pleasure. And we're now going to turn the mic on again. I'm going to drag some stories about the beers, about how it's all evolved and about how you see the future. So, Teddy, are you ready to go again? Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are 
at Dewing Grain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by eastcoastproduction.co.uk. Thank you.